Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. And welcome to the Weinstock Lectures of 1994 on Morals of Trade. Professor Sen has been ill today. To conserve his energies, my own introduction will be as brief as intellectual decencies will permit. He's extraordinarily well suited for the topic of his lecture because he's a truly distinguished international economist who's done outstanding work in modern economic analysis and its practical applications. He has published, according to my small library, at least 17 books, ranging from a classic on collective choice and social welfare to a small book which he delivered in Berkeley, the Royer Lectures on Economics and Ethics, to edited three volumes recently on the political economy of hunger. He has served as professor of economics, New Delhi University, at the London School of Economics, at Oxford, at Cambridge, and now is the holder of the Lamont University Lecture on Economics and Ethics at Harvard. Most of the distinguished prizes and honors that the economics profession could accord have been awarded to him. President of the Indian Economic Association, of the American Economic Association, of the Econometrical Society, and of the International Economics Association. Would you please join me in welcoming Professor Amartya Sen His, his lecture, as you probably know, is entitled Population and Practical Reason. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'd like to say how honored I feel to have the opportunity of giving this talk. I've just seen the list of people who have given them in the past, going back a long, long time. And I'm also, uh, of course, extremely moved by the overkind remarks of Jack Lettish, but uh, I won't protest about the overkindness uh, um, of his um, introduction. The um, topic, uh, population and re practical reason, is um, partly a, um, an analytical, conceptual, theoretical discussion, and partly um, a matter of practical uh, urgency involving empirical information um, about the situation in which we find ourselves now. And in fact, the recently held conference in Cairo, uh, the United Nations organized World Conference on 
population and development, has brought to the fore a number of major issues which um, are very central to the concerns of the world now and on which they have sought attention and suggested um, particular, uh, given particular recommendations in, their, um, in, in the communique that was eventually arrived at. The, I would like to go a bit far away initially from the um, immediately practical questions with which Cairo was mostly concerned, though I intend to get back to them. The literature in economics has been, uh, have had quite a lot of discussion in the past 19th century onwards on what is called optimum population. And from some point of view, that may be a natural point to begin. Uh, the optimum population is consist of uh, variously by different economists, um, some people, uh, like Wixell, for example, has seen it as that population which maximizes some average achievement, either average per capita income or perhaps average per capita utility, and assuming one to be a monotonic function of the other, these two would probably coincide. The others, um, uh, there are others who have argued for a rather different position, a more classical utilitarian position, that uh, you should judge the optimality of population not by average achievement, but by overall achievement, in particular the total utility that's generated uh, by the society in having uh, a particular population rather than another. And in this context, the optimum population has been defined as maximization of simply total utility. Now, there's a very considerable discussion of that in the economic literature as well as in philosophical literature, uh, including um, uh, extremely interesting discussion by Derek Parfit in his book, Reasons and Persons. And there are a number of difficulties with any of these solutions that have been identified uh, by um, um, economists and philosophers in thinking about this way of arriving at uh, the appropriate side of population for a country or for the world as a whole. Um, Derek Parfit has drawn attention to the possibility that if you are really going towards total utility maximization, you have the possibility of what he calls, quote unquote, the repugnant conclusion. It's a slightly uh, um, it's, it's a description which actually um, already presumes some values, I take it. Um, but uh, the repugnant conclusion, uh, there, there is a theorem also that you can have a sequence of one society being bettered by another with a larger population, but a lower per capita utility, but the largeness, largerness, as it were, the, the increase in the population size more than compensate for the fall in per capita utility. So the total utility goes on increasing. And in the limit, you have these billions and billions and billions of people with tiny bits of utility each, producing a big total. Now, he has considered that to be a terrible situation. On the other side, if you look at the average utility picture, uh, there's nothing to prevent you, if the world turns out to be like that, uh, from recommending that there be 
one person or a very small number of persons who have very high level of utility and you can dispose of the rest. Um, the whole uh, question of what to do with people who happen to be here, and, and we know what that involves, um, is a central issue in this optimum population literature and it's really vague on that subject. There, there is a whole lot of discussion also about how to go about thinking about these problems. What could be the ethical basis of discussion uh, of these? And um, there are approaches which uh, go in the direction of something like the original position. But that's not very easy to see, because the original position, as discussed by John Rawls, is one where some people get together in a state of primordial equality to determine what kind of basic social structure they want. But when you're dealing with a population problem, that's a non-starter, because there is no fixed, uh, fixed group of people to get together. Uh, if there's a question as to whether someone is to be born or not, it's not obvious how she might take part in the discussion before being born and then come out with the conclusion that she should be. Uh, and, and, and so the, the, that approach is not particularly healthy. And I think, I think there's a lot of difficulties in applying the um, broadly Kantian mode of reasoning in this case. Um, I think to some extent, though th that distinction is not often made, the uh, contemporary of Kant, namely Adam Smith's discussion, has slightly greater promise because the, the Smithian model differs from um, the Kantian model in, to some extent in, in uh, and I say this with great hesitation, I see great philosophers sitting here and I can see I may be jumped on any moment, <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the model that Smith pursued is one of what I may call arbitration rather than negotiation. It wasn't so much that people participating themselves wondered uh, what kind of a rule they could wish to be a general law and follow that. It's more a question of what Smith called an impartial spectator coming along. The great merit of the impartial spectator is that he doesn't have to be a, he or she does not have to be a member of that group. So in some ways, the Smith thing has a greater range in this respect than the Kantian approach has. That's the general point I've tried to make in some other context. I'm not sure whether it's entirely sustainable, but there is a kind of difference, and perhaps the Smithian mode of reasoning might have some advantage. There are others who have tried to put forward concretely how you might go about thinking about these, putting yourself to be perhaps an, uh, an, a, a, an, an impartial spectator. And C.I. Lewis, um, um, uh, in his um, uh, book on, on uh, knowledge and valuation, discusses one way of comparing it is to think of your living, the life of everybody in sequence and then comparing which of the two patterns you prefer best. Now that, as you recognize, requires you to spend billions and billions of years uh, in leading these lives. And not, it's not altogether clear that it would be very helpful for you to be able to sort things out uh, on that basis, because it, it's a kind of exercise which I certainly would find entirely mind-boggling. And, uh, and there may even be others who might take that view. So there's a whole uh, lot of questions raised, both about the approach that one might use, the ethical approach that might use, and the substantial moral principles, whether utility 
per capita maximization, total utility maximization, or something else which one might pursue. There's a whole lo literature also, another kind, which, which especially Charles Blackaby had been associated and Donald Davidson, and that defined, that tries to avoid the repugnant conclusion by saying, well, you shouldn't really go down to um, um, zero level utility, you should count utility above a certain critical level. So that if you had maximized utility above the critical level, at some total, you would not be necessarily in the state situation of cleaning billions and billions, leading a life of very little utility. But that again raises questions as to where do you draw such a critical line and why should it be the case that a marginal drop beyond that critical level would be regarded as, as so disastrous that, you're, that, you, that you shouldn't count that. It's not quite clear how you proceed uh, to complete the formula. There's a lot of discussion on that. Now, I would like to begin by saying that maybe the entire approach to this problem through the optimum population theory may be mistaken. That is, it presumes that there is such a thing as an optimum population. It's an appropriate subject matter on which for us to entertain a view as to how many people the world should have or a particular country should have. And if you take the view that this is something which gets determined on the basis of personal decisions of people in families and as, as individuals, now then there's a question that there may be still an argument for intervention if things are likely to be absolutely disastrous. But the question is, prima facie, um, it's not obvious that, that you would have a good argument to present against that some kind of a general view of an optimum population which takes an integrated view of the whole nation as a whole. If somebody asks me what the optimum population in the world is, I have to confess that I have no clue. Um, and so if you take that view, then what you're trying to do is not so much to dispute one population, optimum population theory vis-a-vis -vis another, but questioning whether that is the right way of thinking about the problem at all or not. Now, that of course takes us to some extent in the libertarian direction. And one might take the view that this is a matter of personal rights, as my, as my, and as my colleague um, Robert Nozick puts it, um, people can't do uh, to them uh, things without um, without violating something terribly important. Now that um, is an approach which would be, I would have thought, in my judgment, when it comes to population policy, probably the right one to begin with. I would not like to end there because there are problems with it, because it is the case that even though liberty uh, is very important, you have to also consider whether the exercise of these liberties might lead to situations which are terribly disastrous for everybody else. So I think that's why the empirical question become very important. I might remind you that Robert Nozick also, even in his book Anarchy, State and Utopia, did make an exception to what he called catastrophic moral horrors, which would be an argument for violating liberty. And I think that's a move in the right direction. That is, you take something as basic and then say, well, Unless there's something terribly um, extreme happening, you might have good reason to stick to that position. That, at any rate, is the position 
that I'm going to follow, though it's not obviously Nozickian in the sense that he had a whole lot of other rights, uh, including property rights, which he would like to include in it, which I do not see any reason to include. I'm speaking, speaking strictly about population, um, uh, you know, the family's autonomy to determine how many people to have, and the individual liberty to uh, reproduce and, and decide how many children to have. The that approach that people might be left on their own to determine how many children they should have has got into difficulty over the last 200 years with um, critiques of various kinds and particularly from a whole line of reasoning putting for, put forward by uh, Thomas Robert Malthus in his essay on population in 1798, nearly 200 years ago. He was not the first to worry about the population size being too large, which would reduce the standard of living. Indeed, Aristotle has a discussion on that subject. But it is Malthus who outlined the enormous problems, as he saw it, of population growing on its own um, at what he thought would be geometric progression and food supply falling behind that. So he had an economic model of this kind, that since the population base on which it grows depends on the uh, size of the actual population. It's always a percentage of that. So you tend to get a geometric progression out of that. Whereas out of that out increase in population, given the fixity of natural resources, in particular land, you get diminishing return. The APGP was to, um, as an attempt to get uh, great um, uh, profound insights from trivial mathematical formulation, a tendency not unknown now, but uh, uh, it's uh, had the effect of drawing dramatically attention to, 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 to that contrast. Now, the Malthusian um, picture has not really come out very well since then. I mean, Malthus thought um, that the world was already overpopulated. Uh, there were less than a billion people at Malthus's time. And since then, the population uh, has expanded to nearly six billion. And nevertheless, the per capita income and standard of living, at least in some sense, have dramatically increased rather than declined. And it has continued to do so even in very recent years. So the question that has been that can be raised as to whether the, um, this cataclysmic vision that Malthus had could be completely um, um, uh, overlooked now and uh, regard the liberty and the family autonomy-based picture to be essentially right. Now, I think that would be perhaps a mistake, at least short of an examination. Because the world population has, as I mentioned already, increased dramatically. And it has continued to increase at an increasing rate. It took the world about um, 100 and, uh, it took the world about uh, close to millions of years uh, to produce the first billion, and then 123 years to produce the second. And now we tend to get additional billions added between 11 to 12 years each. And that's certainly a, a, a kind of increase that the world hasn't seen. 
And to say that uh, there's nothing to worry about because Malthus was deeply wrong, uh, as we know from what had happened, is actually a, a silly response. We have to think about whether the situation in the world has really moved away from that in a, in a big way. So I'm now going to turn on that subject. Now, there's a lot of discussion, uh, you will find, both in media discussions as well as in um, books, seriously written books, which argue precisely that story. Um, Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, for example, uh, which begins with three sections, which says, um, 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 too many people, too little food, dying planet. It's a kind of scenario of disaster that you have. His later book, jointly with Anne Ehrlich, The Population Explosion, published in 1990, is also in similar spirit. There are others who have written on it, Garrett Hardin, Paul Kennedy, and so on. And one of the interesting things is that about population growth today, um, no matter what startling story you tell, people are likely to believe it. Uh, I saw one evidence of that in a television program which the World Bank had organized, which I was supposed to, uh, which, I, where I, which I attended as a kind of critic of some policies. And the, um, at one stage, one of the uh, gentlemen there was describing uh, that the African country in question would be doubling its population in 15 years. And a great... Um, um, a, a great scientist, in fact, uh, I mean, a great popular scientist named Jacques Cousteau, who does underworld uh, sea photography, mentioned that you must recognize that most countries in Africa, it would be much faster than that. Well, that's just not true. Uh, but people immediately believe that there's no country in the world in population doubles in 15 years. One of the things that happens is that if you grow it very fast, then the population becomes much too young. And so 4% tends to be a kind of maximum limit which you can sustain for any length of time. And you don't certainly double in 15 years with that. So what you have, nevertheless, of course, possibility of sharp increase in population. But at the moment, it's pretty free for all to say anything that you, if somebody, uh, if somebody um, were to say in Kenya, uh, population would double in 12 years, or if you say an, an output, uh, food output per head is declining very sharply, and everyone, everyone around would believe it because there is a general sense of, of, of emergency around. And the rhetoric of the population bomb and so forth um, creates this emergency mentality. And that emergency mentality, of course, goes deeply against the morals of, uh, um, of accepting personal liberty and family autonomy on matters of population growth, on matters of population size, family size. Now, let me uh, turn now to examining a number of problems which people have identified with the nature of the population growth that's occurring in the world today, not in any particular country, but for the, country, for the world as a whole, and I will move to a few countries too presently, but I begin with, the, with, with some general issues. Uh, here, by the way, uh, since I would be going rather rapidly over a number of things, I have a paper which came out in the September 22nd number of New York Review um, uh, called, um, called Population, something else, I've forgotten now. Uh, uh, 
population, delusion and reality. It wasn't my title, as you know. If you write a New York Review, you never choose your title. Uh, at least I don't. Uh, and um, the, um, uh, there, some of these arguments are, are discussed in, in somewhat greater detail than I will be able to do. Well, let me begin with what I would regard at this moment as temporary home, namely richer countries in the world, the United States, West Europe. Now, one of the main worries there is um, shouldn't be the case that, uh, uh, should we not be aware of the possibility and indeed believe it to be true that rapid population growth leads to tremendous population pressure in coming into West Europe and North America. And this line has been argued, uh, presented uh, and argued well by a number of people, um, um, including um, Paul Kennedy and, and, and others. Now, this is the evidence for it is based on the idea that as population has grown in the world, the pressure of immigration to America and, and West Europe has also increased. But it's very hard to sustain that view that it's really connected with population pressure. For example, if you do a statistical inter-country comparison, you don't find that it relates to population pressure in any obvious sense. Nor does it relate to income gap. Uh, it relates much more to the access that people have to job markets here and, and in West Europe. Now, of course, in West Europe, primary immigration has effectively um, uh, been halted. Uh, what we have now is basically uh, secondary immigration of spouses and children uh, of established people, immigrants already there. The United States does take still people from outside coming in in large numbers. Uh, relatively large numbers. But these are dealt with by a process which includes labor certification, whether you have employment and what kind of employment you have and whether, you're, whether there's a skill which you have which you're not replacing anybody in the States and so forth. So that by the time you have gone through this calculation, you're dealing with a whole lot of rather job-worthy people. Not the kind of people that you would expect to be thrown up by the cataclysm of population explosion, leading to the teeming millions starving away uh, in Mozambique. That's not what you get. You don't even connect it to any kind of connection with, um, with income gaps. For example, Mexico remains a major supplier of immigrants, illegal immigrants, too, in this country. And the reason is quite easy to see that it is possible for Mexicans to find employment in a way that it may not be for a Nigerian or Mozambican to do. And that's really concerned with the dynamism of international capitalism. And that applies not only to the, uh, the features of, um, of um, legal immigration, it also applies even to illegal immigrants, because illegal immigrants come in search of jobs to survive on the basis of getting a job. It's a very different group of people that you're looking at. Whether you're looking at guest workers in, uh, from Turkey in Germany, or whether you're looking at illegal California farm laborers, you're looking at a process where people are coming in for employment with the connivance of the employers. And you are looking at a situation which is more international, and indeed, since I'm often taken to be rightly a critic of capitalism, I ought to say that as the world has closed and the political boundaries have become more and more viciously controlled all over the world, um, the dynamism of capitalism remains one of the truly international forces left in the world at this time. What you're seeing actually is an impact of that. And 
to identify the increase in immigration as being caused by the increase in population in these countries uh, would be, I think, a great mistake. There's no bit of economic analysis that supports that. There's another question which is sometimes put, which is not so much immigration, but should we not be worried by the fact that the composition of the population of the world is changing? For example, in 1950, the um, proportion of Asia and African population in the world was 63.7. And now, it's, a, it's about 72%. And so there has been a rise, and it's likely to go on increasing. And in fact, the UN projection suggests that it will go up to 78.5% by 2050, that is the middle of next century. And some people are concerned that in some ways the racial balance of the world is making, getting, getting unbalanced. Now, one doesn't quite know how to treat this issue because racial balance isn't an issue that has any intrinsic importance other than what we choose to give it. Um, on the other hand, it's also important to examine the genesis of this change. If we look historically back we will find that the um, proportion of the Asian and Africans in uh, the world today is enormously lower than it was in the middle of 18th century or middle of 17th century for that matter. In fact, if you like, I'll give you these some numbers. Um, by the way, I, for some reason I cannot think of now. I didn't write 1650 as the first draw. That's 1650. So, you can see that the Asian Africa was a little over 78 percent then, and by 1750 it still remained much the same. And then, of course, began the Industrial Revolution, and a dramatic increase in them, uh, in population in 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 the area of European settlement, which went up from 21.7 to 28.6, and then by 1950 to 36.3. So what we are looking at is the same demographic transition, rapid fall in death rate followed by a decline in birth rate. It doesn't always happen in that sequence, but in general, there is that tendency for there being a hiatus period, producing a rapid increase in population, and if. The UN projection is right. By 2050, the world will return roughly to where it was in 1650 or 1750. Now, I'm not saying that therefore that's all right. I'm not saying any such thing at all, since I don't take a view that optimum population makes sense, nor do I think an optimum division of population makes much sense. But to assume that from 1950 onwards, there has been a dramatic rise in Asian and African and a fall of the European proportion of the population, and that indicates some unbalance, is very ahistorical. It overlooks the fact that these regions of the world are going through exactly what happened to Europe and North America and Australia earlier on. And so if there is an issue to worry about here, it isn't because it's a kind of balance completely unknown to the world uh, in, in, in any situation. Now, I don't really think that these are very serious things. By the way, I had another picture on it. Some people prefer to look at charts. And <laughs> so that's what you will get if you want to look at that. That's the period of industrial revolution. And we are now, just over here, 
and we will go up, of course. But we'll get back to where roughly we were in 1650 and 1750. Now, people who are concerned not about rich countries, but by the poor countries themselves, and there are many such people, of course do point out that that's not what we are really worried about. What they're worried about is the increase in population um, outstripping food supply or income growth. Now, is there evidence for that? I think there is none. In fact, if you look at the classification of low-income countries, middle-income countries, and high-income countries, then over the last decade or two decades, you will see the average population of low-income countries have consistently grown faster than for middle countries and, and rich countries. So this idea that somehow rich are getting richer and poor getting poorer, again, you, if you say it, absolutely everybody would believe you. But it won't be true for that reason. Now, in fact, it's not uniform. There's some poor parts of the world in which poor countries have getting poorer, and that's Africa. Africa has had a problem, and it's also true that the African rate of growth of population is very high, 3.1%, compared with, say, 2.1 in India, or 1.8 in China, and so on. Now, if you look at the uh, African picture, however, you will see that the contribution of population growth to that decline in per capita terms is relatively little. Or to not put it another way, if um, Africa has the population growth rate of China, or for that matter, United States, there are a great many countries which will still have declining per capita income. The problem is really a production problem there. There is a general chaos connected with the economy being disrupted, military rules of various kinds, dictatorships, war, and you have a situation in which the economic incentives and security for production is very severely limited, where investment is very hard to come by, where you see um, agriculture as well as industry very often taking a, taking a downturn, and a situation in which the change has to be seen in terms of really shifting the nature of the political economy of Africa rather than just the population growth. It's also true that family planning work that hasn't worked very well in China, uh, in, in Africa. But that nor has economic production, nor has social services, nor has medical supply. You're dealing really with a much bigger problem of a very different kind into which the population story fits in. Africa had the misfortune of being the arena in which the Cold War was largely fought. The hot areas of Cold War were all in Africa. And depending on which side you are on, extremely anti-democratic dictatorial military regimes would be immediately supported by each side. A client state of the United States will get immediate support through the Cold War period without any questions asked, and a client state of the Soviet Union will have the same. Some countries shifted. Somalia, nice little Soviet uh, client state, then became a U United States client state, and then became a Middle Eastern client state. So you are really looking at a situation where Africa has been really messed around a great deal by the, by the international situation. And if you compare the situation with the late 50s, early 60s, which is when I first visited Africa, I remember still 
dramatic impression visiting Macquarie College in Uganda of how active the news journalists were. In fact, I remember writing to a paper I used to write for often in, in India, namely Economic Political Weekly in Bombay, saying how much more probing and critical the journalists in Africa were. Well, within six years of that, I was told 80% of the people I dined with had been killed. And of course, Africa went into a big downswing from late 60s onwards, from which it is only now emerging. So you have to really view the African problem differently, and to see it as a population problem would be a great mistake. Now, what about food supply? Because Malthus did not say that income per capita will not keep up. He said that food production wouldn't keep up. Now, we know from Malthus's time to now, there had been a very large rise in food production, considerably higher uh, than the population size. But what about now? Are things changing? And you would again hear, if, if any year there is any slackening, you would hear tremendous stories of, 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 uh, of impending disaster. I don't see, looking through the trend of food production, any tendency in that direction. We have to look at the economic analysis of prices and incentives in a moment, but just let's begin with the inert statistics of total food production. The total food production between 7981 and 1991-93, three-year average to avoid year-to-year -year fluctuation on which the alarming stories are based, indicates that there was altogether a 3.2% rise in per capita terms over this period. But you might say, well, that need not indicate there is no problem because it depends on where the food production expansion is taking place. That's not entirely the right way of thinking about it because food can be bought and sold in the market, in the international market. But it's not a bad thing to look at, especially since many people in the developing world live on producing food themselves. Has there been a situation um, whereby the total output of food in the world has been kept up by the United States producing more and more wheat and feeding the world while it goes down in the poor countries. Well, actually that's not the case. In fact, Africa, that is the case. But in fact, where the bulk of the population, nearly two-thirds of the increase in population is taking place in the world, namely in Asia, exactly the opposite is true. The per capita food availability has been going up persistently. So this is a breakdown in terms of, I've done it in terms of indices. So Europe went up, while the world went up 3.2%, Europe went up 2.1%. North America went down nearly 5%, so it's not the United States feeding anybody particularly, or more people. Other developed countries went down more than 10%. Africa went down, as I mentioned, 6%. All these green numbers are down. Asia went up 21.5%, 22% nearly, of which China had an increase of 39% per capita, and India had an increase of 23% per capita. And these are the areas between the two of them. Uh, they contributed between China and India. They contributed to nearly 40% of the increase in population. Uh, in the world. So that you're not seeing a picture whereby the population is outrunning food supply even in the regions in question, other than Africa, where, as I mentioned, there's a general problem. But I think the picture is not even just that. Some people might say, well, food is going up at 3% over this period per capita, but that's barely keeping above the population growth. 
a time would soon come when, when that would not be true. Now, it could easily be the case that you keep up food production by shifting resources from other things into food. And as economists put it, there is diminishing marginal rate of substitution. And as a result, food becomes more and more expensive, but you can still, with that process, keep on expanding food faster than population. Is that what's happening? Is food getting more expensive to produce? The answer is not at all. In fact, quite the contrary. Food is enormously cheaper today than it has been in the past. This is true in the long run, and I give you first a long run picture. This is the, um, from 1800 at the time that Malthus's book was published to now. And you'll see while there are ups and downs connected with wars and such, in general the trend there is clearly a downward one. And in constant dollars, the food is considerably cheaper, 15-20% cheaper today than it was in Malthus's time, in fact a bit more than that. But what about the recent trends? Again, over the last three decades, food prices have been falling quite dramatically. Just to give you one measure, this is from the World Bank estimate, you will see that the wheat prices fell between 53.55 and 83.85 this 30 years by 41.8%, that's 42%. Rice fell by 57%, sorghum by 39%, maize by 37%, and so on. You're dealing with a situation when food is getting increasingly cheaper. Certainly no story of there being diminishing marginal rate of substitution. But more importantly, it's also telling you why food is not expanding more. Because if you were to grow more food, when the market is already such so bad, when prices are falling, you won't be able to sell it, in fact. And the expansion that you saw in the previous table are all of those countries where mostly food is grown for self-consumption, like China or India. There's no question of market there. So what you're looking at at the Chinese and the Indian uh, production things are essentially which are not demand constrained. But when you're looking at the international um, uh, food uh, prices, you see a decline which is clearly affecting the incentive to produce. Now, what I'm pointing out, therefore, is that at this moment, there is very little evidence of a food crisis of any kind. Population is rising faster than food, pop, uh, sorry, pop, food production is rising faster than population. And in fact, it could rise a hell of a lot faster if the price incentives were appropriate. And at some stage, maybe prices would start rising and that might happen. Certainly, before a food crisis occurs, that at least something will happen. Uh, and so an economic analysis of the incentives to produce would support a same kind of picture as, um, as, as um, uh, would, would actually, um, not the same kind of picture, would actually um, make it uh, even less plausible to believe that the world is facing a food crisis now. Now, this doesn't mean that the world has an unlimited capacity to produce food. I, I'm not saying that. The population, uh, po population could grow to a size uh, not just 9 billion or whatever, 10 billion or whatever it is that people um, 
think now might be conceivably possible, but it could grow to a size such that it would not be possible to produce that much food. I just, I'm not saying anything on that. All these tell you about the situation as we see it now. My main point is that there is no immediate catastrophe looming large, which requires you to deal with this on an emergency footing and suspend autonomies and liberties and freedoms of individuals and families in order to deal with a crisis which I believe isn't there. Now, there is uh, a question as to what a country might do if it did believe that there was an emergency. Uh, how might it cut down the population growth? Now we know, of course, the population growth has been coming down fairly consistently with economic and social development, with expansion of income per head and social security, with expansion of, expansion of life expectancy and reduction of mortality rates, with expansion of female education in particular and education in general, with employment opportunities for women expanding, there has been a rapid decline in population growth rate and birth rate all across the world. In much the same way as Condorcet had taught, with whom Malthus controverted. Malthus actually, it's not often recognized, um, Malthus in fact um, began his paper by quoting Condorcet as pointing to the possibility that there might be overpopulation. The Malthusian theory of population was in fact stated first by Condorcet. But then Condorcet went on to say that this problem would be resolved because with economic and social development, to use it in modern language, uh, population growth rate will come down, birth rate will come down and we will expect a reduction. Now, abs almost absolutely as we respect that has to be brought out in my judgment to be right, that there are many different ways in which Condorcet could be criticized, but I don't believe on the subject of population um, he could be easily criticized. I think he anticipated things pretty well compared with that in uh, that of Malthus. Malthus, his book is actually, its subtitle has the name of Condorcet along with that of Godwin, and as a, uh, it says that it's an essay on population with remarks on the theories of um, Condorcet and Godwin. Now, that is a process that's occurring. 1970s, the population growth rate in the world was 2.2% per, per year. 1980s, it's 1.7%. And 1990s, we expect it to be considerably below 1.5%, and so on, it's coming down. Now, the question, nevertheless, is, might it be too slow? Could it be that this process would take such a long time that we do need emergency action? And if we need emergency action, what can we do? Now, there are two which are widely discussed these days. One is the temptation offered by the Chinese experiment in coercion, in cutting down the family size by producing rules about how many family members can you have, how many children you can have. The one-child policy, which has been used to, in a considerable part of China, is one example. The other parts where other policies are used, sometimes housing benefits are compromised if you have more than a certain number of children, thereby 
penalizing not just the wrongdoing, quote-unquote, parents, but also the children themselves. But you also find a general set of admiration on this. In a sense, if you compare the world today with that 20 years ago, there is much greater tolerance of contemplating coercion in this sphere than before. And this is all connected with, I think, the, the emergency mentality that has been generated. How successful has China been in cutting down the population growth rate? Well, the answer is it has been quite successful. The birth rate has come down, fertility rate has come down. There is a more complex story to tell, but let's begin with a simple story. And you can see now that the Chinese birth rate and fertility rate stand lower than that of the poorer countries by a considerable margin. The birth rate per thousand in China is 19, India 29, and poor countries other than China and India 37. Some of them even close to 50, 55, and so on. Fertility rate, which tells you how many children a couple produces, so two is what is called replacement. China had got to the replacement level of 2.0, whereas India is at 3.6, and poor countries other than China and India happens to be 4.9. So the Chinese success certainly seems quite remarkable in that sphere. Now the question that arises is this. Can we discriminate between different things that have been happening in China? One question. Well, certainly China has also been, over this period, having economic and social development, expanding female literacy, expanding employment opportunity for, for women, reducing mortality, expanding life expectancy. One way of asking the question would be to say, are there many countries in the world which match China in terms of these development achievements and still have higher fertility rates? The answer is very few. Um, Thailand, 2.1, hardly about Chinese, would be one example. Jamaica is an example, 2.7. And third is Sweden, 2.1. I don't think people have yet thought about compulsion in Sweden in this context. And there's no other country in the world which matches China's development achievement as a higher fertility rate nevertheless. Another way of looking at this problem is to use the information that's available in discriminating between the developing countries and in discriminating between different regions of India, which is a large country with a very diverse uh, operation. Um, number of countries, um, if you look at Korea or Sri Lanka, they're very different in some economically more successful than others. But in social development, in these spheres, female literacy, employment, and so on, they have expanded. And you see the decline in fertility rate to be comparable. The question that arises in the context of India is particularly interesting, because India is a country of great diversity. There are some regions, like the, uh, the northern Hindi heartland, UP, Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, where the fertility rate is very high, between 4.5 to 5.1. And there are other regions where it has dramatically come down. If you take Kerala, its fertility rate now is um, 
1.8 as opposed to China's 2.0, and its birth rate is, um, uh, is, is also lower than that of China, 18 per thousand rather than 19 per thousand. Now, Kerala, of course, is a case where you have no compulsion at all, but you have a high rate of female literacy, and you have a high life expectancy, and you are seeing there the impact, similar to Chinese in terms of development, but a little bit more, and in fact a little bit more achievement. So not obvious what compulsion is actually doing. One way of asking the question is to compare the experience of China since the one-child policy was introduced in 79, and in the same period what happened in Kerala and even another Indian state which has recently taken a plunge in birth rate, namely Tamil Nadu, which many of you will remember as Madras, as they have all been renamed. Now, if you look at that, these are the figures dealing with 679, when the one-child policy was introduced in China, when China had a fertility rate of 2.8, Kerala had a fertility rate of 3.0 in the same year, Tamil Nadu of 3.5. In the period when China came down from 2.8 to 2.0, Tamil Nadu came down from 3.5 to 2.2 without any compulsion. And the Kerlin uh, fertility rate fell from 3.0 to 1.8. It is as much below the Chinese in 1991 as it, is above it, as it was above it in 79. You certainly don't get a picture of the Chinese getting a tremendously additional fillet from this. Now, this is not to say I mean, each country is too generous in some sense. I don't want to make a general statement that the Chinese fertility rate has not been influenced by that. But the story that development combined with availability of family planning works very well is, I think, an important one to consider. In that context, it's also relevant to mention that the, aside from the uncertainty as to how effective compulsion has been in China, there is also the question of its enormous cost. There is, of course, the enormous social cost of compulsion and coercion and what it does to human life. And that's where I started asserting the importance of liberty and family autonomy. And that's a, certainly an issue to consider uh, in this context. Um, the, some people take the view that the, somehow the Asian population don't object to compulsion. I'm not quite sure where that view <laughs> originates from. <laughs> but um, any time it has been put to a vote, where, which it has not been in China, uh, the outcome has been quite clear. For example, in India at the time of emergency, along with suppression of other liberties, the compulsory family planning was very much under dock. And the politicians who supported that, of course, lost the election quite dramatically. So that there's some evidence that they, even the Asian population, despite their inscrutability, seem to, <laughs> seem to find compulsion difficult. But the other aspect of it is that it produces a situation in which uh, the family members do, the parents do a terrible lot of things in order to come within the uh, legality of the situation, to either not be uh, prosecuted or not have their housing benefits compromised. Sometimes it's benign in the sense of suppressing the children, but very often it's not that. Quite often it is a situation in which it is a, the people die, whether it's infanticide or not, I'm not going to enter that story. I think the line between infanticide and neglect, neglect basically high infant mortality, 
uh, is difficult to draw. But certainly the infant mortality rate is the only mortality rate in China which hasn't dwindled since 79. Every other age group, the mortality rate has come down. Another way of looking at it is 79, China and Kerala had much the same infant mortality rate. Now they're miles apart, and that tells you something. This table gives you those figures. So China and Kerala had respectively fertility rates of 2.0 and 1.8. The infant mortality rate, though they were similar in 79, by the way, this refers to 1991, I should have written. In Kerala, male, in male infant mortality rate is 17 and female is 16, where in China, the male infant mortality rate is 28 and female is 33, nearly double. And in fact, more than double for women. So there are two things. First of all, much higher female, much higher infant mortality rate in general. But secondly, relatively much higher female infant mortality rate, because given the traditional son preference that operates, both in India and in China, if you restrict the family size, the, the uh, the burden of adjustment, as some people put it euphemistically, tends to fall on female children, much more on the male children. Now, the, uh, there's a real difference between the Kerala and Chinese situation. Uh, the Chinese have made progress in life expectancy and female literacy, but Kerala had made more. Life expectancy in China is 69, in Kerala 72. Female literacy is 68% in China, 86% in Kerala. And you see Kerala reaping as it has sown. By the way, if you, even if you make an interstate comparison, China is, of course, an aggregate country, Kerala has higher female, uh, in, uh, female literacy rate than any individual state in, in, in China. So you, what you're looking at here is a kind of collaborative process whereby the fertility rate comes down because of the role that women are able to play, which has been the crucial factor in the history of the, of the Kerala decline of birth rate. Um, and one general proposition is that given the fact that um, women in particular uh, have to bear the brunt of the high fertility rate that um, affects many third world countries. The natural group to rely on for cutting it down are of course women. And anything that increases the power of women has the effect of reducing fertility rate. Whether it be expansion of female education, whether it be greater level of employment, particularly um, responsible and well remunerated employment of females, or whether it be greater activism in politics, you would find that, the, uh, that the, the expansion of women's agency has had the effect of reducing fertility rate sharply, and that's what you are actually seeing in China and Kerala. One of the pieces of statistics, which of course is a cumulative one, which is important to bear in mind, if you go by the ratio of female to male in the total population, which to, tends to be about 1.05 in Europe, though, as Ansley Cole points out, that that would have been somewhat lower in Europe and North America, but for the higher male mortality in past wars, would be possibly 1.02 or 3 or 1.04. In Kerala, the ratio of female to male is exactly that, 1.04, whereas that in China is 0 0.94, like that in India as a whole, namely 0 0.93. 
So he was really looking at the situation where women's agency is playing a very big part. Now, I would conclude by mentioning that I think we have to really get away from the emergency mentality of our population and not try to outweigh the basic concern that we have for individual liberty and family autonomy in doing practical reason about po population on grounds that something dramatically, breathlessly has to be done right now. Nothing needs to be done right now in that form. What needs to be done right now is to expand the processes of collaborative expansion, female education, more employment for women, more involvement in politics, and expansion of life expectancy, which on its own will have the effect of reducing birth rate combined with the availability, wide availability, of family planning methods. Incidentally, in Tamil Nadu, which is the second highest female, lit uh, second highest literacy in India, uh, it's still quite a bit behind Kerala, but in fertility decline it's come down, and there the activism of the family planning program certainly has, has played a part. I would mention in this context that the uh, that while I've dismissed the short-run concerns about population arising from uh, food supply or, 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 or income growth and so on, and even the long-run concern about immigration pressure or the balance of the population in the world, the racial balance, I've not taken the view that there are no long-run problems. I think the environmental pressure is a serious one. Sometimes people say it doesn't really matter because most of the population expansion takes place in poor countries, and one American um, consumes and pollutes the world um, 30 times more than an Indian or Zimbabwean does. On the other hand, that's not really a very good argument for the long run, because if the Zimbabwean and Indian population base becomes very large, well, they will consume a large amount too in the future, so we have to worry about it, and right now. I'm suggesting, therefore, not to ignore the problem, but to see it in terms of the exercise of liberty and autonomy. And there's absolutely every evidence that people tend to go in that direction, given an adequate opportunity. And that opportunity should not be just a family planning opportunity, and I'll end with that remark, because that is actually one of the great dangers that the world faces. Coercion, of course, is one of them, and, and the and unreasoned admiration for the Chinese uh, admiration and reading of the Chinese uh, success in this. But the other is, is a general feeling, which to some extent was even aired in Cairo, uh, that priority should be given to family planning over all else. And all else in this context also means education and health services, which of course, given the limited budget, uh, an expansion of family planning, the thing on which it tends to fall most is health services. And to some extent, it's happened in many countries, and to some extent, even in North India, uh, that you see that much more shift towards family planning and a little bit of compulsion being introduced in North India with very little success. Sometimes people quote statistics from a number of countries which through family planning have brought the population growth rate down, and Bangladesh is very often quoted, rightly so, to some extent. We have to understand what extent. The fertility rate of Bangladesh was 7.0 not long ago. And now come down, according to one figure, 5.1, another to 4.5. Now this is a very big decline. On the other hand, that 4.5 is still considerably higher than even the Indian average. 
of, of 3.7. And if you have to go down from there to something close to replacement level, you need the education, you need the health service, you need everything else which gives power to those on whose decision and agency you have to rely in order to solve the population problem. So it's the reliance on the agency of the people most involved and therefore an assertion of the, the liberty of individuals and family, which I think is essential, uh, my understanding of the central part of practical reason in population. And that's what I wanted to present. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sen. A distinguished economist was once introduced before delivering a public lecture at Cambridge in England, and his good friend turned to the audience and said, there's the general view that a public lecture is going to say something fresh and have some interesting results. I want to disabuse you of that view right away. But well, that certainly was not the experience we had, we had with Professor Sen. He will be pleased to answer questions which he will field himself. Yes. Uh, there are just uh, one point which uh, bothers me because you didn't mention it, and that is when you talk about the empowerment of women, hasn't that got to do a lot with, apart from education, with the right to property? Because Tara yes. has to be a patriarchal. So yeah. I do discuss that in the, in, in, the, in the New York Review paper. I didn't get around to it. Uh, it's slightly misleading to say that um, Kerala is um, matri in a matrilinear in population. It's true. 20% of Kerala is, consists of the caste of Nair, for whom that is true. Just as misleading as some people say Kerala is a Christian state. 18% of the Kerala population happen to be Christian. Now, all these are actually correct and part of the story uh, in this case, uh, and um, one should assert. Uh, and I think the fact that a very influential part of the Kerala community happened to have a matrilineal property uh, inheritance law did help. So the empowerment of women does include that, certainly. I hadn't gone into it. Uh, as detail as, uh, as I should have, and I'm happy that you mentioned that. Yes? I'm surprised to hear you say that you thought that there was more power to the idea of coercive measures to control population. Um, I would have thought that it, anything has gone the other direction since the late 60s and early 70s, when there was, um, I think, more tolerance than there is now. That's reflected part in just looking at, for example, Ehrlich's work. And the, the 68 work is much more prone to sort of making statements about the need to coercively control things in the 1990 work, which repeats many of the things about the need to improve the status of women. And certainly the Cairo conference was primarily focused, the focus um, uh, on, on precisely those steps. And so it doesn't talk with at least what, what I observe to be what. Yes. Um, I think certainly it's true that the Cairo conference did not give any room to compulsion, and that was one of the great features of the Cairo conference, I think. 
And in that context, it was a rare agreement uh, between the United States delegation, which is a um, which also took a strong position on that, along with that of many of the leading third world countries. Um, on the other hand, as a general rule, I think it would be a mistake to read, I believe, uh, you know, uh, it the way you are reading. Um, if you look at Ehrlich's thing, what happened between the first book and the second is that it was quite clear that food supply was not falling behind population in the way the first book predicted it was, you know, described it was doing. And there were a number of things. There was a book by two paddocks, W. Paddock and H. Paddock, I think, I can't remember them, um, describing called Famine 1975. And it mentioned why, published in 1968, um, saying why there would be a, a famine in, in the world because there would be so much, um, so many people. And India in particular was completely written off and saying that there's no possibility of it meeting the food production. Uh, that time, and as we saw that it actually has had a 23% increase in per capita food output. In general, the reading of the world has moved away from that degree of fearing immediate crisis. I think that's one of the things that certainly happened. Um, for one thing, people have learned now not to attach dates. You don't say famine 75. You say famine in the future, because <laughs> someday you may come right. Um, so, um, but in terms of the toleration of coercion, what I meant is that since there was no real experience uh, of, of a well-publicized coercive thing uh, earlier on, I think the Chinese experience had been very important in this respect. The, um, in the, uh, the Chinese have had some forms of compulsion even before 79, but the big dramatic thing was in 79. With the with the expansion of with with the expansion of controls and these things that I described, so that in some ways now there is a argument that uh, see it works, and you see that coming up. I mean, Garrett Hardin would be a good example where he had a long discussion as to why, in fact, it's not clear what compulsion means. A kind of deeply philosophical discussion. Uh, uh, of, of what compulsion means. And of course, you can always say that, well, is this compulsion, is that compulsion? But that is actually a kind of finery which replaces uh, the basic wisdom uh, of, of, of the situation. And I think the, um, in terms of just, if you look at the newspaper articles today, there is much greater uh, willingness to consider uh, compulsion as a method than it was before. Now, I think that you're absolutely right that Cairo didn't do it, and I think the, um, uh, the United States leadership was, was very important in, in that conference in this respect. But in fact, um, if you went by uh, just newspaper and media coverage, I think the picture is, is, is not quite like that. Okay. Uh, well, I think you raise your hand first. Thank you for an interesting presentation. Um, you base many of your conclusions in large part on increasing food yields in, uh, in the world. And indeed, while grain yields have increased in the 1965 to 1989 period by 2.7% uh, per year, that is, on a per hectare basis, Fertilizer use has increased uh, uh, much more dramatically, 4.6%. So I submit to you that uh, 
much of the increase in uh, per hectare yields has been fueled by fertilizer use. And uh, uh, you may recall that uh, nitrogen, for example, <coughs> um, is a, a nitrogen fertilizer production is very energy intensive, the Haber process. And uh, phosphorus is a mining of a one-time endowment subsurface mineral. Um, so uh, once we see some of these endowments being drawn down, uh, then you would see uh, much uh, lower increase in yield and perhaps uh, stabilizing or negative, uh, negative growth. I don't quite have that reading. It's true that the fertilizer use has expanded. Quite a lot of the expansion, of course, has also come from expansion of land area. And you might think that that's not inexhaustible. I'm not arguing that anything is inexhaustible. But I'm arguing that there is no reason for a real um, um, uh, sense of ap apocalypse at this time, which is the form in which it is often stated, uh, and which would be a good reason, perhaps, of uh, violating some basic liberties and, and autonomies. The essential aspect of the um, fertilizer use is the remarkable fact that fertilizer use has expanded at a time when food prices have dramatically fallen, so that the incentive to use fertilizer, of course, would be greater uh, if the prices were rising. Now, you're pointing out that the fertilizer supply of the world is limited. I, I think it's true of some of the fertilizers. It depends on a variety of alternatives that you might consider in this context. And quite a lot of areas in the world, of course, have very little irrigation and so forth. I mean, you know, Africa has a real problem of drought and so forth. So there are whole kind of possibilities of expansion which you have to consider. I'm not disputing that at some stage there may be a popular, uh, food problem, uh, food production problem emerging. But I see nothing in the available indicators to suggest that we are anywhere close to that figure now. <laughs> yes? Yes, I, I don't know whether people heard that or not. That, uh, that's a popular belief, though, she says, it's um, usually privately expressed not publicly expressed, but she is expressing it publicly, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, uh, that, the, that religious composition affects the population growth rate. And doesn't the Kerala example have something to say on that? Indeed so. Uh, actually, um, the popular belief in India, which is sometimes stated by the Hindu fundamentalist party, the BJP, is that the Muslims grow has a faster rate of growth of population than, uh, than, uh, than Hindus do. Um, and, and um, on an average, there's just an element of mechanical truth in that. But the differences between the communities in any given region is relatively little compared with differences between regions. That is, the difference between Hindus in Kerala and Hindus in UP is enormously more than between Hindus in Kerala and Muslims in Kerala or Christians in Kerala. In fact, the communal differences in fertility rates are fairly negligible within each state. You have to bear in mind also, incidentally, if one goes by that, that Kerala is the, sec country, uh, is the state with the second largest Muslim population in India. So that, in fact, it certainly doesn't go in that direction. So you're quite right if you were drawing my attention to 
the possibility of airing the view, which I'm very happy to do, that the communal composition does not seem to make a ma much of a difference. It really is these other factors, including education, employment, longevity, and uh, female property rights, as was mentioned. Um, I'm very happy to endorse that and assert it. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I agree that uh, uh, focusing on alarmist projections and the like really doesn't help the discussion, and we should be cautious about that. Um, but if I could ask you, that, that still leaves unanswered the question of what kind of world we should build, or we should aspire to, or what kind of vision we can hold out to our children and other peoples around the world that we can come to over a period of 20, 40, 70 years and in the future. And I wonder if maybe you could just sketch out in very rough terms, I know this is not What kind of vision can, in good conscience and good faith, hold out? What level of sort of material welfare can be held out as both sustainable and socially just uh, that we can all aspire to and think about in a real way? Is it Beverly Hills worldwide? Is it a healthy, integral Mexican agricultural community worldwide? Is it medieval France worldwide? What else? up for you in thinking about that kind of vision. I, I just ask it because I think if humanitarians such as yourself aren't able to put forth, or myself or ourselves, aren't able to put forth such a vision, then we are uh, subject to the arguments of libertarians and others who say, go for as much as you can get. So I'm just curious how you might respond to this question. Well, first of all, I mean, this, um, the whole world being Beverly Hills, the whole world being a Mexican cooperative community is, of course, a deadly thought, but happily it won't quite come to that. Um, I'm not opposed to our, our entertaining views about what the nature of the world would be in the future. What I was arguing against is the political leadership of the government taking a view and then working in that direction by forcing others to do what would be appropriate to bring that about. I think we are strongly influenced by our visions of society, justice, the future, uh, and so on. And the rapid decline in fertility rate that you see uh, in, 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 in any of these countries where, or regions where there have been expansion uh, of female education, etc., uh, bear that out. Now, if you're saying that I cannot talk about population without outlining a a canonical description of what the future would be like. But I'm afraid um, I have to fail then because I don't have any uh, view. I would, uh, and I don't even have a view, I mean, in my view, it would be very important to, to, to be living in a society where people are comfortable with, which, uh, which they have brought about on the basis of their own decisions, rather than a view of some kind of an ideal uh, society which we think of and which we then work uh, through, through compulsion and, and strong persuasion to bring about. So I think uh, some of the things that you are concerned with uh, seem to me to be legitimate matters of concern for individuals and families. And to a great extent, it seems to me it's appropriate that we should think about that being perfectly acceptable thing to happen. What would be problematic, of course, if there are some issues which are very hard to deal with, the ozone layer and the global warming, those would require particular reactions. At the moment, it's not the population problem that's creating pressure on it. It's a high level of consumption 
in the rich countries, but in the future it might arise. If one had reason to believe that in poor countries population growth will continue unabated um, despite economic and social development, I'd be very worried. Uh, I'm not sure what to do about it. Happily, we have spared that trouble because it seems that there's every reason to expect that on the basis of individuals' calculations, uh, people tend to go in much the same direction. So I don't really see any particular reason to not only bring in the alarmist story, but even to bring in a, a particular vision of a future society, uh, which, I, which, I, um, which I put forward and then ask the world to conform. Yeah. I think there were some more questions, yeah. I believe the size of the family also plays a role in the in poverty reduction. Poor parents tend to rely on their children to sustain them from their when they grow old and and I guess coercion policies may have a perverse effect on that uh, that normal way to reduce uh, poverty or to to create a social net. At least it has been uh, it has been true for uh, income mobility families that move out of poverty, rely on big family sizes, and invest in internal capital funds, and that's important. What what would the, what would your view be be about this? Yeah. Well, you see, one of the reasons for having a, uh, wanting to have a large number of children is that precisely the fear of social, uh, the fear of insecurity in the future, especially when you're old, and certainly the connection between um, mortality rate of children uh, and your propensity to produce many children. Uh, I mean, it's certainly connected. Now, the demographers always point out there's some complexity. Not not everything works quite the way you would expect. But basically there is a strong relationship in that direction. And what you're pointing out, that that is a relationship that we should expect. And, uh, and of course, that's very much one of the reasons why mortality rate reduction uh, tends to work in this direction. I should say, incidentally, that another reason which is often overlooked why mortality rate reduction has this effect uh, is because mortality rate reduction is connected with health care and is very often much more effective to spread family planning through healthcare, because people have a reason to go to uh, a, to a doctor or to a to a health uh, to a to a health centre in order to seek a remedy, and then you could also get the family planning procedures at that time, and that's why the tendency to play up family planning exclusively, cutting down the healthcare, I think is extremely alarming, both for the reasons that you mentioned because the security would be badly affected by that, and also for the complementarity between the delivery of health and delivery of family planning methods. You're not going to let any more? Okay. Shall we take one more question? You get to choose. <laughs> Collective choice. Is there anybody? No. There are lots of them, yeah. Please take you mentioned um, the role of the dynamics of capitalism as being a significant uh, force in determining immigration. I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate on not specifically that, but also some other factors that would be involved, such as the role of capitalism in agriculture and in possibly suppressing rural autonomy or in uh, decreasing socioeconomic welfare. I guess I would specifically mentioned institutions like the World Bank, the IMF. I was wondering how you see these institutions and 
uh, others like them. Yeah. If I were if I were giving a general lecture about what do I think about capitalism, I would certainly go into that. I was just mentioning that despite all its limitations, capitalism has the feature of being one of the few remaining international institutions in the world. And that it fits into the logic of it. You look for cheap labor and cheap and efficient labor, and if you manage to get it from abroad, you do it. So because of the logic of it, uh, uh, it, it has ended up as the boundaries of each state have become uh, you know, castle-like uh, in Europe and, and may become in America. There's a lot of pressure in the direction of immigration control being made much more severe. Capitalism remains a force working in the opposite direction. In fact, virtually all of them, whether legal or illegal, who end up in West Europe or North America come with the cooperation and connivance of the, of the, of the employers and of those who have who are looking for labor, and mostly it's labor movement rather than anything else. That's what I was pointing out. Now, you're pointing out that capitalism has a lot of other problems, and you're also putting World Bank and IMF into that story, and that may well be the case, and I'd be very happy to discuss that. In the present context, I don't, you know, that's not what I was commenting on, but that does not say anything one way or the other. Uh, on the on the other issues, and of course, if you and I were to sit down, I think we could probably agree on some of the limitations of capitalism. Having gotten out of bed to deliver this lecture, I want to thank Professor Sen very much indeed for delivering, I think, what was indeed a very thoughtful, well-prepared, and wise lecture. Thank you ever so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.